Hey, good morning, church. I also want to say good morning to those who are in our venue. Good morning to you. To those who are joining us in our gym, I also want to say good morning. To those who are joining us online and in spirit, good morning. I also want to take a moment and just say hi to like, it's like 15 families I know who are in Florida right now. I have a special message for you. Today is the day that the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. 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 Hey, I am Pastor Ryan. It's good to be with you here this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. If you are with us last week, that's no surprise to you. For the next few weeks, we're going to be just walking through Matthew chapter 4. Today, we're going to look at a very debated topic, the abomination of desolation. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 22 is where we are going to be today. If you did pick up one of the Bibles that we provided as you walked in, that's on page 1054. As you're turning there, this entire chapter is just Jesus speaking in response to when the disciples asked him, when will the end come? What's it going to be like? When will you come back? And as I said last week, there are pastors and scholars and commentators who I love and I learn from who land in different places on how to interpret what Jesus is saying. And today is no exception as we look at the abomination of desolation. So hopefully you're to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read verses 15 to 22 and then we'll get going. So let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel... Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is the word of God, everyone. Let's pray, and then we'll get to it. Father God in heaven, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, Help us to know what you would have us know today as we look at these verses and the words of our Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. So when we look at this passage, I think the most burning question people have is this. What is the abomination of desolation? What are we talking about? What is Jesus referring to? Well, rather than give you a big roundabout answer, let me just kind of zero in. There's really two different ways that good-hearted scholars have come to understand what Jesus is saying. On the one hand, many people think that Jesus is specifically referencing the Roman army when they decimated Jerusalem in 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus spoke this. Because remember, part of the question the disciples are asking Jesus is, what's going to happen with the temple? So some people look back and say, this is a prophecy fulfilled. Others will look and say, no, 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 Jesus is actually pointing much farther forward. And he's referring to the Antichrist. 
which is spoken about later in Scripture. And the, and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. is a type of fulfillment of this prophecy, but not the actual fulfillment. Now, Matthew chapter 4 is what uh, we call the Olivet Discourse. And we call it that because Jesus gives this teaching from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Olivet Discourse is recorded also in the next two books of the Bible, in Mark and in Luke. But each of them kind of nuance what Jesus says in a slightly different way. So what I want to do is I want to kind of cross-reference Matthew, Mark, and Luke as they record this teaching of Jesus. So as you know, we've been reading from the book of Matthew. This is how Matthew starts this passage. Matthew 24, 15 was the first verse that we read today. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, let's see how Mark records this exact same verse. Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now let's see how Luke records this. Luke records Jesus saying this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Mark's account is probably the original one because while Mark wrote it, Mark is giving the firsthand account of what Peter told him. Mark was a, a disciple of Peter. Matthew, Matthew has a clear Jewish bent to his writings. So it's no wonder that Matthew makes time to make sure that he references Jesus' notion uh, when Jesus speaks to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I just want to take a quick, quick aside for those of you who are deep into like Bible history and the study of these things. Let me just say this. Yes, I think that the blasphemy of Antioch Epiphanes in 168 BC did fulfill portions of the Daniel prophecy. But Jesus is clearly looking to something that is in his own future. All right, let's continue. So Luke. Luke is a, uh, Luke's has a very clear Gentile bent to his writings. He's more concerned that everybody is clear on what he's writing. And so in order to do so, Luke at times omits overtly Jewish uh, connotations of, of, of his gospel. So let me just say this. I do believe that all accounts are accurate. I believe that they're all looking at the same diamond, just they're slightly turning it a little bit. But what they all tell us what all these gospels tell us, at least, is that Jesus is referring at least partially, what he is referring to is at least partially fulfilled when Rome does invade Jerusalem and destroys the temple in 70 A.D. Because that's the question the disciples are asking. Let's look, look at these real quick. Matthew talks about the holy place, which for a Jew, that is undeniably the most inner part of the temple. Luke talks about armies surrounding Jerusalem. They all talk about those who are in Judea, where Jerusalem is. They all talk about those who are in Judea fleeing, the mount, fleeing to the mountains. So we see that it's pretty clear that at least a, there's a partial fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here in 70 AD. Now, I know that that was like a lot of like deep Bible analysis. If, if I've lost you, I want you to come back with me for a second here. Because I think here's the trap that some of us might be falling into. I think there's people here are sitting here listening to my listening to me talk and, and you're thinking wait wait a second here 
the abomination of desolation is just the Roman army and it already happened? And you're completely underwhelmed. Let me just say, just stop right there for a second. Setting aside that if this is true, that it proves Jesus is a prophet, let me tell you exactly what happened in 70 AD. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can't give you all the details because at Peace Church we know we have young ears in our congregation. In the late 60s, the original 60s, the Jewish community began to revolt against Rome. And Rome set to control this rebellion and they sent troops to surround Jerusalem. Now this happened actually during the time of the Passover in April. And I told you last week that during Passover, Jerusalem would swell to five to six times its normal population. So you have the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem and they seem like they're a bunch of nice guys. They're letting all the Jews into Jerusalem to celebrate their most holy holiday. So they let all these Jews in and Jerusalem swells to five to six times its normal population. But then they wouldn't let people leave. And not only would they not let people leave, but they cut off all supplies coming in and out of the city. They would not let water come in or food. And the people began to starve very quickly. And that starvation turned to madness. And I'm not going to tell you everything that happened, but I'm just going to say that horrendous acts happened, even with own Jewish families, as starvation set in to madness. This lasted from April through August. And with Jerusalem weakened and starved, at the end of August, Rome invaded and massacred nearly the entire population. Almost every single person in Jerusalem was killed. And they destroyed the temple. Now the Roman soldiers, wherever they went, they carried the emblem and the image of the eagle. And the Roman soldiers, they would worship the emperor through that idol of the eagle no matter where they went. And when they decimated Jerusalem, they brought this idolic imagery, uh, this, this image of the idol of the eagle into the temple. And they decimated the temple and they destroyed it. What they did to Jerusalem was nothing short of desolation. In fact, if you go to Rome today, you'll see this. This is called the, the Arch of Titus. This was, uh, this, was, this was made to commemorate this very victory of, Jerusalem, of Rome over Jerusalem. And in this arch, if you go on the inside and you look on the inside here, You'll, see, you'll still see these images carved in that commemorated when the Roman soldiers sacked the, the temple and they carried the holy relics out of the temple and back to Rome. You know, what's interesting is that when Jesus records this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says the same thing. He says, when you see the, desolation of, uh, the abomination of desolation, run, flee. No, don't try to be a man and take a stand. You hightail it out of there. And through the non-Christian, the non-Christian historian Josephus, he tells us that the Christians, when they saw this starting to take place, they did run. They evacuated the city and they head for the hills. But the Jews did not. And 
vast majority of the Christian population survived and the vast majority of the Jewish population was massacred. This is why you'll find some people say that this prophecy was completely fulfilled in 70 AD. But others, others will point to verses 21 and 22 as an indication that maybe Jesus was actually pointing to something that is still yet to come. Jesus says in Matthew 21 and 22, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been, con- con- if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, God's chosen, those days will be cut short. See, what the Jews experienced by the Romans during this invasion is a horror that no one here can begin to imagine. But do these verses, do they only point to what happened in 70 AD? See, I I don't have time and I definitely don't have all the finite answers. But I will say this. I wish this was all behind me. I wish that the abomination of desolation, I wish that already happened. I wish that wasn't something we had to think about coming in the future. But I do think that Jesus is pointing to something that we will see yet come. And I don't normally get into speaking like this, but I'll just say this. I am watching for the day that the Jews rebuild or at least reestablish the temple because I do think it'll be a focal point for end time events. Paul writes about the Antichrist, whom he calls the man of lawlessness. And he writes about him in 2 Thessalonians. He says this, he says, For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul writes, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. See, Paul is surely connecting the ideas of of an abomination and desolation in this man of lawlessness who we see as the Antichrist, just as Jesus seems to be connecting end-time events with the temple. These are intimately connected. And as much as I'd love to get into the nitty-gritty of mapping out certain veins of eschatology, I want to stick to the theme that I think Jesus is getting to right now. Rather than explaining all the finite aspects and the nuanced approach to the end times, I think the main thrust of what Jesus is getting at is he's trying to prepare his people. He's trying to prepare us for what is to come. And I think one of the clearest ways that we can prepare for what is to come is this, is if we strive for holiness. You see, the the abomination of desolation is called an abomination because it is an utterly unholy thing, which stands as the antithesis of what God's people should be. We should be holy. And I'll say this to you, all who can hear me, especially if you're part of the American church. I think a passage like this exposes a very hard truth about ourselves, and that is how low of a bar we have set for ourselves when it comes to the call of holiness. You see, we are not offended by the desecration of what is holy, and we're not offended by what is unholy because we are so desensitized in our own lives that we can barely distinguish for ourselves what is holy and unholy. I mean, let me look at your movie collection. 
Let me see what you're, you're letting your kids listen to. What excuses do you give for giving just a fraction of your income to God's work in this world? Oh, you better believe I'm going to take a baseball bat upside the head of all the idols in our life. If you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now, I'm telling you right now, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. So you better listen up. We have lowered the bar for what it means to be holy in this world so that we can still blend in and not stick out. Church, God's going to bring judgment on that. We are called to prepare ourselves by being holy. You see, I think some people were, were so zealous, were more zealous to share our opinions on social media than we are to pursue a holiness. I tell you right now, you, you, you talk about striving for holiness. You talk about striving for holiness with people and you know what people end up sounding like? They sound like a 10-year-old boy making excuses for why they don't want to unload the dishwasher. Oh, do I have to? Oh, it's so boring. No one else has to unload the dishwasher. And we make all of these excuses for why we don't pursue holiness. People, I'm going to tell you right now, if you are not pursuing holiness, you're not really living. Jesus says that he came to give us life in the full. And one of the ways that we have that is through pursuing holiness. But we think the pursuit of holiness means that we have to be prudes. Old-fashioned, uptight, and stingy. And that's because we have adopted a worldly Ned Flanders understanding of holiness. Holiness is where we find true joy and true fulfillment in our lives and in our families. Holiness, write this down if you are taking notes. Holiness, listen to me. Holiness is how God identifies his people. It's not by who is in this building on Sunday mornings. While that may be an, a good indication, God identifies his people by holiness. This is why we, this is why we will be able to see who the Antichrist is when all the world is led astray by him. Because we are a people who knows what is holy and we know what is not holy. Some of you may be asking, well, what is holiness? I'm glad you asked. Simply put, holiness means to be set apart. The Greek word that we see here used is hagios. And I love this way to describe it. Listen, listen to this. Hagios, holy, implies something that is set apart by God and therefore different, distinguished, or distinct. I love this next line. That is that we have an otherness to us because we are special to the Lord. To be holy means that we are not like the world because we are the ones who are like Jesus. Hear me on this. Yes, yes, to accept Christ, to become a Christian, means you immediately become holy. Church, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are immediately called holy and set apart by the Lord in so much that we are set apart and distinct because of our faith in Jesus. But you also need to hear this. Holiness is also a process that we begin when we accept Jesus. And it is a lifelong process of ups and downs. The Bible calls this sanctification. Christians, you are holy. You are holy being made holy. I love what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want? What does God want you to be about? He wants you to be on the path in pursuit of holiness. 
that you own the fact that you have an otherness compared to this world. What does God want for you? He wants you to become holy. This is what God wants for you. Hear me on this. Please, oh, please hear me on this. I wish I could preach this point for another hour. Holiness doesn't mean that we are pristine, perfect people. It just means that we are people who are increasingly becoming more like Jesus. But I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you right now. This has consequences. You're going to feel this from the world if you truly pursue this. So let me ask you a question. This might be kind of a weird question. What do you like your home to smell like? Go ahead, turn the person next to you. Tell them what you like your home to smell like. <laughs> Why are y'all laughing about this? <laughs> now hear me. Now, whether you are into Yankee candles or essential oils, we all have certain smells that we like. Me? I love a fresh cut lawn in the summer. I love that smell after that first spring rain when you can open up the windows. Mm. In our house, we, uh, we like those uh, Glade plug-in things. You know what I'm talking about? We, we like the apple cinnamon ones. So if you smell apple cinnamon Glade plug-in, I'm telling you right now, you're in the Kimmel household. Do you know that the Bible, the Bible tells us that spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, the world will not like how Christians smell. Let me share a passage here with you. Paul writes this. He says, thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. Let me summarize this for you. Paul says that among those who are coming to faith in Jesus, among those who are experiencing revival, among those who are coming to know the Lord, we are the aroma of life. We smell like good things, like purity and joy and salvation. But to those who are opposed to God... We smell like death. Because in us, they will see a holiness that they will hate. I'm telling you right now, they will hate it and they will ridicule it. And whether or not they know it, it's because they see something in us that deep down they know that they want. But they hate it because they love the darkness. And so in their soul, they will see us and they will smell death. There are many ways this has played out over the centuries. But right now, I think one of the most primary ways we are seeing this happen is through cancel culture. The world will jump to conclusions about what they think we're saying, and they will mischaracterize, and they will mischaracterize what we are saying so that they can undermine it, so they can minimize it, so they can disregard it, so that they feel justified in not engaging in a conversation. They will say that they, that they know what we're about, and they will call us narrow-minded and people of hate so they can write us off and not even engage a conversation. Why? Because they look at us and they smell death. And who could stand the stench of death? But I know that there are people here wanting to hear from me. 
Right now, you just want me to throw up a list of do's and don'ts of what it means to pursue holiness. Right? Like, can, you still li- can you still watch rated R movies? Can you still listen to country music? Listen to me. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts of what it means to be holy because I don't think that's what it means to be holy. But I am going to tell you what I think the Bible tells us about how to become holy. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, he says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, sanctification is by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and belief in the truth, which is the Scriptures. To this, God called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we sanctified? By living into the Holy Spirit and truth, that is, the Bible. And we are called to this through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we could become like Jesus Christ. Listen, holy doesn't mean that we are a bunch of laughless, joyless prudes who can't enjoy a good movie. But holiness does mean that we don't live into the rat race of our culture that destroys marriages and families. I'm going to stay on this point for just a moment. I have yet to talk to one kid in all my time in ministry, in all my time in youth ministry, I have yet to talk to one kid who doesn't want more time with their parents. Parents, your kids may act like they want more stuff, so if you feel like you have to work more to provide more stuff, I'm telling you right now, in their heart, they don't want more stuff, they want more of you. And one of the best ways that you can spend time with them is reading scripture with them, praying with them, praying for them. Listen to me, I don't care if your kid is 6, 16, 36, or 66. You got a kid who's 66 years old, you, you old. <laughs> I don't even feel bad saying it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still be reading Scripture with them. All the days of your life, read Scripture with your kids. All the days of your life, you pray with them. You pray for them. And then you know, you know what? Go play a game and laugh and have fun. By doing this, you will see holiness increase in your family. You will see love and joy and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit in your house as we live life to the fullest as Christ says we're going to. Families, here's a statement that should put all of us on edge right now. Our kids will become more like the things that we give priority to in our lives. If the pursuit of holiness isn't a priority for your family, then expect your kids to become worldly. I know that seems so basic, but I'm going to say that again. If the pursuit of holiness is not a priority in your family, then expect your kids to become worldly. They may be nice. I'm not saying they won't turn out to be nice citizens, but they'll be worldly. And they will not be prepared for the end times let alone heaven itself. Church, if we strive for holiness, tearing out, we will become attuned and acutely aware of what is unholy to the Lord. And you won't need me to give you a list of do's and don'ts. You will know it for yourself. If we strive for holiness, then when the Antichrist does come and all the world thinks he's a godsend, we will know that he is anything but. Of course, that is if you believe in a post-trip rapture, which, by the way, we are going to get into the return of Christ next week. And so in our world of comparing ourselves to perfect false images on social media 
in our world of keeping up with the Joneses, in our world of identity crisis, let me give you one critical, critical component to pursuing holiness. Holiness means finding our worth, not in who we are, but in what Christ has done for us. How much something is worth depends on how much someone will pay for it. I don't know about you, I like to do some antique shopping, and one of my favorite parts of that is bargaining of a price. I know how much I'm willing to pay for something, because that's how much something is worth to me. I'll tell you right now, Jesus Christ gave up his life to buy you back from the clutches of the devil. How much are you worth? You're worth that much. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Church, hear me, especially if you are part of the American church. Our value is not in our achievements. Our value is not in our acceptance from the world. Our wealth is in the life, death, and resurrection of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Who paid, amen. Who paid for us by his precious and holy blood. Not just so that we will be saved, but so that we will be made holy. Church, pursue holiness. It's how that we will identify the abomination. It's how we will prepare for the rise of the Antichrist. And as we look at, and as we're going to look at next week, it's how we prepare for the return of our King. But until then, we have to pursue holiness. The abomination of desolation gives us a stark contrast to our lives. That is something utterly unholy when we are called to holiness. Amen. Would you please stand? I say this in love, but I think there are some people right now, you're looking and reflecting on your life and you're realizing you're not pursuing holiness. I think there's some people right now, you're looking at your life and you've been going through the motions and you're not pursuing holiness. I'm going to tell you right now, we're about to worship through song. If that's you, just look at me right now. I, I did not judge you. There are times in my life where I have not pursued Christ, even though I claimed his name. If that's you, if, you, if you're not pursuing holiness, just give me a nod. I want, to, I want to be with you in spirit and pray with you. If you're not pursuing holiness, just give me a nod or something. Listen, I don't even care what your morning was like. This is the moment you have. So turn it around. Repent of that. Focus on your faithful Savior who beckons you, who calls you to himself even right now, who calls you to pursue holiness. We're going to sing a song right now. It's called Crowns. I want to read you some of the lyrics. It says, I will count all else as loss. The greatest of my crowns means nothing to me now. For I counted up the cost and all my wealth is in the cross. Let that be your anthem. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for everyone gathered here, for everyone gathered in one of our venues, for those who join us online. Lord, for the church that you've gathered here at peace. Lord, as history unfolds and as the time of the end grows closer, help us to be a people with our eyes fixed on Jesus. As we live in the security of your love, even if we don't have absolute clarity on the end. Lord, we know what you tell us. You tell us that in Christ, 
and by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we look to Christ and we pursue him, Lord, you will make us holy. So, Father, I pray that as we sing these words, we truly will cast aside our crowns as we look on our Savior, killed for our sins and raised to life for our joy. So, Father, I pray that your church sings now, not because we are good, but because you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.